Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 3 through 8. And we're mindful of what our theme has been this morning, the holiness of God. And God commands His church to be holy, for He is holy. And so the Apostle Paul is now going to emphasize the theme of holiness or sanctification uh, starting in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, really kind of through the rest of the book. So last week we looked at verse 1 and 2, the importance of pleasing God, that this is kind of an essence of sanctification, living a life that pleases God, and just the importance of that. And he told them even though they're doing that, they need to excel still more. So we pick it up now in verse 3. Because now Paul is going to start addressing some specific areas of sanctification that needed to be brought up and exhorted to the church there at Thessalonica. And the first topic that he's going to deal with is sexual purity. And I think the reason why this is such an important passage is because we live in a in a day that's kind of a sex-crazed culture. The sexual revolution back in the 60s that ramped up back then has basically hijacked our own culture almost in every area where different unbiblical lifestyles are being promoted and pushed. And and, uh, if we don't agree with it, then we're actually threatened in some cases. We live in a country where biblical sexual morality has been largely abandoned. It's interesting, in Paul's day, such morality had not been abandoned. It had actually been woven into the warp and woof of their society for hundreds of years. So they lived in a very pagan context where there was a wide range of sexual immorality and promiscuity that was not only tolerated, it was encouraged, even within pagan temple worship, especially among the fertility gods and goddesses. For example, Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. And Corinth was renowned for its own uh, immorality. Uh, for example, they what was a popular... Uh, goddess to worship in Corinth was Aphrodite, and they practiced cult prostitution in the context of worshiping this goddess. She was a fertility goddess, among other things. So it was very much woven into the culture back then. John, in his book of Revelation, in chapter 2, indicts both Pergamum and Thyatira And he rebukes them for their immorality that was associated with the idolatry of their pagan worship that still was kind of overflowing into the church. In Thessalonica, it's really no different. They worshipped Aphrodite, Zeus, Artemis, Apollo, Serapis, Isis. I mean, there are are all these gods and goddesses that were worshipped everywhere. And some of them, again, promoted sexual immorality in, in the worship. 
In this culture also back in that day, men could, it was okay for them to have a mistress or slaves that they would use as concubines and to pursue casual gratification with prostitutes. Almost kind of reminds you of today in many ways. The wife was to manage the household and be mother of his legitimate children and heirs. But there was all kinds of abuse in that relationship as well. And many of these Thessalonian believers who are in the church had come out of that cultural background. They had been involved in a lifestyle of that even in the areas of religion, sanctioned sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, along with other acceptable practices such as homosexuality and even pedophilia. These were all a part of the culture in which they lived. And so the exhortation that Paul is making to them is very appropriate for our day and age and our culture that is wrestling with many of these same, these same issues. So Paul begins in verse 3. And I'll just read this passage for you before we launch into it. But he says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, now he begins to get specific, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification." So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. So let's launch into this. So he starts in verse 3, and Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is something that we can be confident in. Any day you wake up and you wonder, I wonder what God's will is for me today. It's your sanctification. That is always God's will for all of His children all of the time. Now back in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul has already uh, prayed to God that the Thessalonians would have their hearts established without blame and holiness before the Lord when Christ comes back. But the only way for our hearts to be established in holiness then is for us to pursue holiness now. And so now he picks that theme up in verse 3. We all need to be pursuing after sanctification. That is God's will for our life. Again, what is sanctification? Well, it involves several aspects. We are separated from sin. We are separated to God And we're to live a life that pleases God. Be God-centered, not me-centered. Those are kind of the three aspects of sanctification. And Paul says this is an ongoing process. Uh, This is kind of a holy war that we engage in, fighting against our own lusts, but that we're to be 
pursuing sanctification. That is God's will for us. Even at the end of the book, Paul will return back to this theme and pray for God to sanctify us entirely, our body, soul, and spirit. So again, this is a major theme going forward. Now, in verse 3, he also now gets to be uh, very specific in what he means by being sanctified. And he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the negative side of sanctification. He'll address a positive uh, in the next verse. But here he says, abstain from sexual morality. Sex is a good gift given by a good God, but it's been twisted and distorted by the fall so that sexual energies are now being directed in an ungodly way. And so Paul is exhorting them to abstain from sexual immorality. The word immorality here is a word porneia in Greek. And it can have a very broad uh, reference to any form of sexual immorality. All kinds of sexual intercourse outside of marriage, prostitution, adultery. Even for the unmarried, it would be fornication. Even homosexuality. He says avoid all of that. Stay away from it. The word to abstain is a, is a strong word here. It means to avoid contact. Run from it. Stay away from it. Stop doing it if you're doing it. John Stott emphasized that this particular word refers to a clean break with all impurity. A total abstinence from this sin. In other words, tolerate no moderation. It's interesting that whenever Paul normally lays out lists of sins, which he does in different places like in, in Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians, Galatians, whenever he starts laying out a list of sins, sexual sins are always at the top. They're always the first one because of the culture in which they lived. The reasons for this is because sexual sins impact us on a much deeper personal level than other sins do. Remember what Paul told the Corinthian church, which that letter he wrote later, but this was a church that wrestled with these sins oftentimes. He said to them, flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Why? Because it impacts us on a level mentally, emotionally, and spiritually which is far more concentrated than other kinds of sins. That's why we need to abstain from sexual immorality. Another reason to abstain from it is not only because it impacts us deeply and personally in our soul, but it's waging war against us. 1 Peter 2.11 Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So we're in a war. We're in a battle against our own lust, but you must abstain from it and say no to it. Because it's after you. It wants to defeat you. It wants to destroy you. 
And of course, another reason why we need to abstain from sexual morality is our day and age, just like back then, is immersed in sexual sinful lifestyles. And therefore, Christianity requires a radical break. The sexual relationship must be preserved as a holy union within marriage and only within marriage. Again, it's God's gift and blessing, but only so when it's kept within the boundaries of that ordained institution. Part of the background for this kind of exhortation is again found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Don't give your body to impurity or immorality. Your body belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So why would you go and prostitute it? You've been bought with a price by the very blood of Christ. Your body belongs to Christ, not yourself. So glorify God with your body. Don't shame it. Don't drag it into all these immoral, sinful lifestyles that will pollute and dishonor the very God who has not only purchased our soul, but purchased our body as well. So within the church, people are going to struggle coming out of these lifestyles. Within the church today, people struggle in these areas. Within this church, there may be people who struggle in this area. And if you struggle, reach out and get help. There are people who love you, people who want to help you to experience victory in these areas, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's Immorality, adultery, fornication. These are serious sins. Reach out and get help. There are people that can help you deal and overcome the temptations that so many wrestle with. Paul then goes on in verse 4 and 5 and he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, in uh, the New American Standard has, tra- has uh, translated this literally, know how to possess his own vessel. Some of your Bibles, like the ESV and the NIV, are actually going to interpret the word. It's actually vessel in Greek. They've interpreted it as body. There's two. This is this is by far the most difficult verse in all of First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians. Is how do you interpret this exhortation? Let each of you know how to possess his own vessel. And there's two. There's lots of views. There's two major views. One of them is that the vessel refers to your wife, and so it's an exhortation to men to possess their wife in sanctification and honor. And that's a popular view. Many commentators hold that view. The other view is that the the word vessel refers to our bodily vessel, and it can refer to possess your own body, like the ESV and the NIV translated it, and possess your own body in sanctification and in honor. 
So of these two views, I'm more inclined to the body view. So even though I, I prefer the translation as vessel, the interpretation, I think, is better with the idea of body. So what Paul is saying in verse 4 is let everybody in the church, men and women both, to possess your body in sanctification and in honor. Don't misuse your body. Don't use your body for something that is sinful and not pleasing to God. And again, that can refer to both men and women. So that the emphasis in verse 4 is on the virtue of self-control. We're to possess our body with self-control so it stays within the boundaries of sanctification and honor. So this seems to be the point. This is true even for singles that uh, they can direct their energy in developing godly relationships and loving service to other people, but you possess your body in a way that will honor and please God. And then in verse 5, he emphasizes not in lustful passion. In other words, possess your body in sanctification and honor. Don't give in to your lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So in other words, the church today needs to stay away from the world's philosophy. If it feels good, do it. Well, as long as I'm not harming anybody else, I can do it. It says no. Possess your body not in lustful passion, but in sanctification and honor. Christians are not to imitate the pagans who do not know God, and who do engage in lustful passions a lot of the time. We're not to be like those Gentiles who do not know God and are continually trying to gratify the lusts of their flesh. Don't be that way. So Paul is exhorting them, turning the the focus in verse 5 really on the inward cause of outward immorality, such as adultery or fornication or whatever. It's the, it's the inward lust of the heart. It's those lustful passions. And I think this is important that Paul emphasizes this because a lot of times we can become self-righteous thinking, well, you know, I'm not committing adultery or I'm not doing things like that. But still we can have a lot of sin in our heart and a lot of adultery in our heart. And that's why Jesus emphasized this in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Paul is exhorting the church is stay away from the outward activity, but also govern your heart in such a way that you're not giving in to your lustful passions. So avoid that. Both outward sin and the inward lust that lead to that sin. Jesus would go on to also teach that if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. That ought to warn every man in this room, stay away from pornography. Turn away from it. Cry out to God to forgive you that sin. You're polluting your heart through the eye gate and ask for God's grace to overcome it. 
Jesus isn't literally saying pluck out your eye, but He's trying to speak of a, of a, of a gesture of how graphic and intense and violent we should be to deal with our own sin. So He's exhorting them, avoid sexual immorality, possess your own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, because that's the way the Gentiles do it. So to safeguard ourselves, we need to avoid places where we're tempted. Watch out on the internet, TV programs, books, anything that promotes sensuality or developing unsafe relationships that are tempting to sin. Women need to dress modestly so that they don't tempt their Christian brothers by the way that they dress. These are some of the things we need to be on, be on guard with in terms of safeguarding ourselves so that we don't fall into the lustful passions of the heart. Remember what Paul said back in verse 1, we're to live our lives to please God, not our own passions. That's why Paul could exhort the Roman church to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lust, for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision for that. This can have an application again both to married and to unmarried. To married people, they need to exercise self-control in the sexual relationship. Do it in, a, in sanctification and honor, not in passionate lust. Give honor to your spouse. Respect them in these areas. Don't pursue after gratification of just your own lusts in a way that would dishonor your spouse. Be other-centered rather than self-centered. And of course, be faithful to your spouse. But to the unmarried and all the young people, the implication here is equally strong. You need to remain a virgin until you're married. Don't engage in fornication of any kind or pursue relationships or activities that will violate God's standards of sanctification and honor. Practice disciplined abstinence until you're married. Avoid behavior that arouses inappropriate sexual desires. The reason why that must be carefully understood is because those, as we used to say, those who play with fire will get what? Burnt. To pursue sexual immorality can have long-term effects that you never envision when you're engaging in it. Feelings, memories stay long in the mind and in the heart after the, the relationship is long over with. There's a lot of emotional and physical baggage, especially when there's abuse in this area, that can be carried on for years and decades and even for the rest of a person's life. Sexual behavior is to be holy and honorable in the sight of God. And that's why Paul commands singles, it's better to marry than to burn with passion but to remain pure until you're married. That's a tremendous gift to give to your future spouse. And remember that God is merciful. 
And He will forgive past sins when we confess it to Him. That God will help us to overcome lustful passion as you immerse your mind in His Word and seek to walk by His Spirit. Many of these believers had been guilty of all kinds of sins before they got converted. Some of them were still being tempted in these areas. Some may have even been falling back into those things. And so Paul's words are very strong. They're powerful. But of course, we remember God's mercy to forgive whenever we come before Him and confess our sins and seek His grace to overcome them. And then we move into verse 6. So Paul says then that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Now this is interesting because a lot of commentaries, well some, when they come to verse 6, says now Paul is switching topics. Now he's dealing with uh, defrauding your brother in business matters. And, uh, and so they'll kind of take it off into more of a commercial direction and how we're to have faithful, honest dealings in business and things like that. That's really taking this out of the context. Really what he's talking about, and, and it continues to flow with what's behind it in the passage and what's ahead of it, is the whole issue about sexual immorality. But in verse 6, he's saying, Now no man should transgress or sin against or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger. Well, how does that work? Well, if you commit adultery, for example, within the church with someone else that's a believer or they're in a, in, within the church and they're both believers or whatever, if you commit adultery either with the wife or the husband, you are defrauding that person. You're defrauding them. Now, the word to defraud carries the idea of cheating them. You're abusing them. You're taking advantage of them. And this word defraud is actually used of Satan's deceptive tactics to deceive and ensnare people into sin. You're defrauding your brother if you do that with his wife or conversely with, with her husband. You're defrauding them. Richard Phillips, one of the commentaries that I read, a Reformed preacher in Florida, said a woman who steals a husband breaks up his marriage and family. A man who seduces a single woman robs her future husband of the purity that she ought to offer him. A middle-aged man or a teenager who plugs his heart into pornographic images diminishes his capacity to love real people. Sexual sin inevitably involves spouses and parents, children, siblings, friends, and fellow Christians. Because sexuality is a covenantal and societal matter, therefore the Scripture commands, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So that's the exhortation. Do not defraud someone else within the church by having a sexual relationship with their wife or their husband. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger. The Lord will avenge. 
You say, well, is he talking about church discipline? Or is he talking about serious judgment and wrath? The word avenge is consistently used more of God's judgment and wrath. So I really don't think it's talking about even church discipline. I think the Lord is going to come and avenge those who sin and commit sexual immorality, and particularly if they do it within the church with somebody else. The Lord is the avenger. The Lord will judge them. And I think what Paul has in mind is that those within the church who begin to practice this and make a habit of it and do not repent, then they're showing the fact that they're, they're really not believers at all. They're like Gentiles. They're like pagans. If they're going to live like a pagan, they're going to be judged like a pagan. That's the idea I think Paul is emphasizing. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. God will judge the man who refuses to submit to sanctification and indulges in sexual immorality. And Paul reminds them, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. He says, I've already told you all this. Because again, you're dealing with people that have come into the church that they've been saved out of all kinds of sexual, sinful behavior. Homosexuals, uh, adulterers, temple prostitutes, and they've been saved and they've come into the church. And so they bring all this baggage with them. But he's saying you must have a break in that lifestyle. You cannot continue in it. If you do, the Lord is the avenger. And you'll come under the very judgment of Almighty God. He says, I've, I've warned you this. I've solemnly warned you about this before. I'm just re-emphasizing it. And I think the warning is appropriate. Because there's all kinds of consequences with these kinds of sins. It can not only ruin your marriage. It can transmit sexual diseases. It can bring hardships. It can even bring death. So that if a professing believer engages in this sin and remains unrepentant and will not change, then it will lead to church discipline and ultimately removal from the church. We remember, however, that God is merciful. He is forgiving. He's long-suffering with us if we but repent and come back to Him. He's a loving, gracious God. And then in verse, the last couple of verses, Paul says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, he's just emphasizing don't get involved in impurity. And impurity is another word that just speaks to any kind of moral corruption. Whether it's immorality, homosexuality, pornography, whatever it is, God has not called you to that. He has called you to sanctification. That's what He wants you to engage in and pursue. Paul emphasizes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. See, the church needs to live differently than the culture. And we cannot in any way rationalize or justify gratifying our, our sinful desires by saying, well, the culture does it, 
or this person does it, we're to be different. We're to come out from among them and be separate and be different. It should not even be named among you. Because you'll develop a reputation that will bring shame to the name of Christ. And then in verse 8, Paul says, For he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. In other words, if you reject, Paul says, my teaching about remaining pure, pursuing sanctification, staying away from sexual immorality, if you reject this, you're not just rejecting me. You're not just rejecting the opinions of men. You're rejecting God. And not only that, you're rejecting His Holy Spirit. To reject God is one thing. Because God commands us, that's His will, is our sanctification. If we do not obey His will and pursue an ungodly lifestyle, then we're we're rejecting God. And whoever lives that way should not have any assurance of their salvation. But they need to realize that they're in jeopardy of, of going... Uh, to face Christ without a Savior. But they also reject the Holy Spirit. Why is that spelled out by the Apostle Paul? Because it's the Holy Spirit's primary job to make us holy, to sanctify us, to lead us in the righteous and the godly way. It's one of the Father's greatest gifts to the church is the Holy Spirit to make us holy. And if we turn away from that, then we're rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit in showing ourselves to be void of the Spirit. In other words, we're lost. So true believers are capable of falling into any of these sins for a season. But God is faithful. If the Spirit dwells within us, He will not allow us to stay in that, but will convict us and lead us in repentance and restoration back with Him. If the Spirit's ministry, it is the Spirit's ministry to do this work of sanctification. And the hope for people in the church who are struggling in this area, and people in the church struggle in this area, the hope is that they can overcome this and make advancement in sanctification if they walk by the Spirit Because as we find in other verses, as Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's the key. We need to walk by the Spirit. If we do that, the Spirit will enable us not to carry out the desires of the flesh. And when those desires do come up within our hearts and minds, we can identify it and confess it and repent of it and continue to move forward. But it's only if we're walking by the Spirit. But there's a great hope for all who are struggling. The hope is walk by the Spirit and you'll find victory in that area of your life. There's a great example of failure and a great example of victory I want to close with. Great example of failure, of course, is David and Bathsheba. David walking around on his rooftop, seeing Bathsheba, not guarding his heart, not guarding his eyes, 
But he sees it, and the lustful passions within his heart welled up, and he committed adultery. Shameful adultery for the king to commit. We know, of course, there are consequences to his sin. And he lost that child. He also committed murder in trying to cover up that sin. But David is a sad example of a failure of someone who gave way to the lustful passions of his heart. Although there's no greater repentance than Psalm 51, and after David repented, God restored him back as king. He never really lost it, but he he was restored back, although there were long-term consequences with his folly. The godly example, of course, is Joseph in the Old Testament. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he resisted. As a young man in a very powerful position, who today, I mean, you would think he had the world at his fingertips. He had all the potential ways to gratify his pleasure in any way he wanted to as a young man. But when when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, this is what he said. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, what guarded, what guarded Joseph's heart was he was walking by the Spirit. He was walking and living Coram Dale before the face of God. So when he was confronted with the sin, God's face was there as well, figuratively speaking. And he said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Because he was always living and walking in the presence of God. And that guarded his heart. Well, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, she didn't give up. He did not listen to her lie. He did not listen to her to lie beside her and to be with her. And now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Why was he able to overcome it? He was walking by the Spirit. And he did not carry out the desires of his flesh. Well, you may be here this morning and you may be thankful, you know, I'm really not guilty of any of all that. Because again, I'm uh, faithful in my marriage. But we all need to be mindful of the warning that Paul gives here. Because Paul also exhorted the Corinthians and he said, Therefore, let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we may think, well, you know, hey, I'm, I'm standing. I'm, you know, I'm protected. We need to stay vigilant. Let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. On a practical level, how do we walk by the Spirit so that we won't carry out the desire of the flesh? Let me tell you one important way in closing. Get the Word of God in your heart. Remember in Ephesians 6 when Paul described the armor of God, he said to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
You see, the Word of God is the Spirit's sword. It's His book. And what do you do with a sword? You defend yourself and you attack and you slay those lustful passions in our heart. He has given us the sword. We need the Spirit of God because just having the Word is not enough. We need the Spirit of God using His sword in our heart and mind as the key to enabling us to pursue after sanctification and not give way to the lusts of our flesh. If you're battling these areas, you definitely need to be in the Word of God. And you definitely need to be praying for the Spirit of God to use His Word to help us say no to sin and yes to righteousness. So, sanctification is a war zone. We're all in it. The battles are there. The enemies are out there. The arrows are flying. We need to have the armor of God on. We all face temptations. And we all need to fight the good fight and pursue after sanctification. To wrap up, in order to please God, verse 1, we need to grow in sanctification by the Spirit who empowers His people through His Word to say no to sexual immorality and yes to righteousness. And since we're all in this holy war together, may God give us all grace to move forward in the things that please God. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, that the Word of God sometimes just slaps us. It confronts us head on with temptations and sins. But Lord, Your will for us is not for us to do what pleases us, but to do what pleases You. And yet, Father, we need Your Spirit. We need... We need the power of Your Word in our heart and mind. And so we pray, Lord, for each one in this room this morning, whether we're being currently tempted or not, Lord, that the Spirit of God would sanctify us. That You would guard our hearts. And Lord, if if there's any that have fallen in these areas, Lord, grant them repentance. Forgive them, Lord. Woo them back with Your loving kindness and Your patience and your long suffering your willingness to forgive for those who truly repent and come back to you may the prodigal find his way back to the father's house that he might find that sweet fellowship with you again so father bless us guard us protect us and sanctify us we pray in jesus name amen